today. We kind of what what we're going to look at in a day, as it were, and uh, he was uh, 
trampled. The Lord, Elisha said that he would see the deliverance, but he wouldn't get to enjoy it, eating any of the food. And, you know, he trampled uh, as the people ran out of the city. And so, for a relatively, and I, and I say that, humanly speaking, small thing that uh, just saying, you know, I don't see how the Lord can do this. Uh, the Lord kills them for it, in a sense. And we made the uh, observation that to reject the Lord justly brings the worst life and eternity that is possible. That to reject God, to not believe in God, uh, is the worst possible of sins. Um, and, and that it's therefore not human misery that is the worst thing, is to be avoided at all costs, but to uh, the to reject or do not believe the Lord. This is why the Lord allows these things to happen. It is a result of the fall and what we all deserve. And to balk at this is to balk at our sinfulness and God's holiness. And that's why the Lord can allow uh, people to die uh, for their sin because uh, what the life is about honoring him. And when that is not done, then we, in a sense, forfeit our right to exist, because that's why we were created to begin with. And although a lot of people just completely would uh, reject that entirely, that, that the worst thing is human suffering, or mankind, his happiness is all that matters, and if God isn't there to help them, then they have no use for God, right? So it's just complete opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. And so if these passages teach us anything, it is how easily the Lord takes care of us and why it is such an awful sin not to trust him fully. In other words, we saw how he delivered them in one day from starvation, a great city. All right, so as we come to chapter 8, uh, ever since chapter 4, the land has been in a famine, which is, we've already seen part of the consequences of Israel's idolatry. Um, there, there, this appears to be happening in a time when it is not a famine. Uh, and so uh, there's some question as to when did this take place. First of all, the, the king is talking to Gehazi. We know that Gehazi um, was a leper. And so some say, well, you know, how in the world could that take place? But there's actually a couple of different ways to look at this. First of all, the king... Uh, you can talk to a leper. You're sort of supposed to con- come in contact. If you came in contact with him, then you would become ceremonially unclean and perhaps catch leprosy yourself. So as long as there was a distance, and it was perfectly normal for Gehazi to be around, even as a leper. Also, as I said, uh, the uh, there's no... And the next thing that happened is this at the beginning of chapter 8. It's just saying that this is something that has happened. We don't know exactly when it's happened. So it's very possible this has happened in the past, before the famine. Um, well, not in this case, it would have been after the famine, obviously, but, but later on, uh, in a time that, so it's, it's, in other words, it's, it's not necessarily chronological, and so uh, there's no reason to uh, get caught up in any kind of controversy here. It's interesting that this famine is twice as long as Elisha's, remember his is three and a half, and this is seven years. Because everything about Elisha's ministry seems to be twice as long as, uh, or twice as double whatever Elijah's was, right? But it seems apparent that God is increasing his warning judgments in a gracious provision of increased warnings as he gives him ample time to repent. In other words, we know that the 
northern tribes are in trouble. We saw that with Elijah. Judgment's coming, and the Lord has been gracious to give them. Even seven years of famine is a gracious act of God when he's told you why famine comes to Israel. It's only because you've been, you're in idolatry, and if you would re- return to me, uh, the, the famine would end. But in the northern tribes, this goes unheeded. Even uh, the somewhat bright spot of Jehu, which we'll start looking at next week, who was a king of northern tribes, uh, was not a particularly, he feigned somewhat obedience to Yahweh, but not particularly well. Um, and so, you know, that's where we find ourselves here. Another thing that we can point out is that, all, that this applies to all the things, these passages, and we've said this many times, that we, we, we're struck with why is, are we told these things? They're interesting. But what, you know, what are we to see here? Why is this being related to this? And I think a big part of the answer is because all these things reveal so much about God. They're interested in themselves, but it's, it's what they teach about God and what, how he sees justice, how he works his will, as we'll see today in the second part of this, is very important. I mean, tell me what is more important than knowing who God is and how we relate to him, right? And so, I think that's one of the things we're going to see here. For instance, uh, the word restore in the first six verses, where this woman is going to have her possessions restored to her. Remember, this is a faithful woman. She's a godly woman. The Lord is, we see the Lord taking care of her. But the uh, that word is the same word uh, as recover that we'll see in the next uh, few verses when we're dealing with the whether the king is going to recover from his illness. And so what we end up having here, if you think about it's the same word, this woman who is, a, is faithful to the Lord is being restored. This king who is an idolater uh, will not be restored. You, you could read it like that when it says you will, he will not recover. Um, you know, he, or, you know it, it's, a, it's a sense that he, his restoration isn't going to last, you might say. And so... Um, we have this, this thing that we constantly see of the contrast between the Lord's people and those who are uh, lost. It seems clear that this woman was the head of her household, as I said. It, it would appear her husband is dead. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I don't think she was uh, out of turn here. I don't think she was uh, not being submissive. I, I think that her husband was dead. But we've also seen all the way through this, she's She's a very personable, outspoken, uh, kind of a take-charge woman. She's the one who got her husband to build the room and so forth. So she, she's, I think she's a, a, she is someone that we can admire for her love for Elisha and the word of God. Um, so here we learn the lesson that God's people often get caught up in the same misery that this world is in. Even the warning judgments of the Lord. It's an observation we've made several times. And what we remember is that we as Christians have no um, promise that we will escape tribulation. That's why i always never been a big fan of the, the Thanksgiving song that where it says, uh, May thy people escape tribulation. Remember that uh, word in, the, in, that, in that one song. Um, uh, come we be thankful people come up with the song. 
Because I don't think the, there's no place in the Bible where we're told that we can ask God to escape tribulation. We are to ask him to give us strength and to deliver us through tribulation, right? But if, if anything's going to happen, God's people will be in tribulation. And the Bible, I think, is very clear about that. And here we see just she's caught up in this famine through no fault of her own. Uh, but that's part of it. And so while she's greatly inconvenienced, to say the least, what is cause for rejoicing is that the Lord is taking care of her. Yeah, she, she's, the Lord has disrupted her life because she lives in a sinful world, but he still takes care of her. And it might be good for us to remember that, that just because we sometimes are put in an uncomfortable situation, perhaps we are reduced, whereas before we had a very good uh, situation, perhaps the Lord, for his own reasons, has reduced us so that now uh, we're, we live in a much more meager situation. That, that certainly happens to people. Um, that's okay. It doesn't mean the Lord's not taking care of you. And you got to remember that, that your comfort is not what life is always about. You know, the Lord is doing his thing. And it doesn't mean that he's not taking care of you. And, and we uh, ought not fail to mention her readiness to obey the Lord. In that she has moved her whole family at his word. I mean, Elisha comes along and says, uh, there's going to be a famine. If you want to uh, eat um, and have what you need, you're going to have to disrupt your life. You're going to have to up and move down to Philistia or wherever she, that, you know, he didn't say where you had to go, but she ends up in Philistia. Um, so that's, and that's just God's will for you right now. And it's not because you've sinned and you don't, we don't have to read a lot of things into it that we just need to be ready to accept God's will in our life and to do well in it until things might change. <clears throat> and as soon as the uh, famine is over, she moves back. Now, of course, you've been gone 14 years. So now, all of a sudden, uh, or seven years, you've um, you've left, and other people have uh, maybe moved in using your land that you weren't there. <laughs> You know, they're trying to make a, trying to eat, find something to eat. And so she asked, she comes to the king to ask, may her, my, our lands be restored? Because by the law of Israel, it should have been, and that would have been the right thing to do. Perhaps the most wonderful thing taught here is that this obscure woman, who is just one casualty of thousands, and I'm sure her story is not unusual, uh, has not been forgotten by the Lord of great things because he's the Lord of all things. So he's been working out the affairs of men for a myriad of reasons, one being so that this woman could be cared for. We, 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 you know, again, in all that's going on, we just get this little microcosm look at one woman who is faithful to the Lord who is being taken care of. <clears throat> and so one way he does this and that's probably the most interesting thing about this uh, account is that, um, well, that when, before I even talked about it, as we read this, uh, the king talking to Gehazi, is there any place in scripture that you are reminded of where this happened before? Where while a story is being related, the person walks up and says, oh, there he is. Do you have any idea? Um, I'm thinking of Esther. 
Remember, the king couldn't sleep one night. And he gets up, and he starts to read the history of, you know, the current history, and he reads all about Mordecai and how he had uh, <clears throat> um, foiled a plot to kill him. And uh, so he asks the servant, he says, uh, has anything been done for this guy? And he asks the very guy who is plotting to kill Mordecai, remember? And uh, so it, it would be a horrible, uh, horrible sin for a Christian to say, well, my, aren't those interesting coincidences? This is not one to hear either. As Gehazi is... The king wants to know what... He, tell me about Elisha, because Elisha is an interesting character. He's done great miracles. What has he done? And Elisha, Gehazi says, well, the big thing, I guess you say, he's uh, raised his child from uh, the dead. And as he's telling that, the mother walks up. Perhaps the mother and child walk up. And he says, there they are. So what, what the Lord is preparing... The, the heart of the king, just like he did of Esther, to favorably receive the woman. And, and again, the, the point about all this, the reason why this is so good is that, you know, we all have anxiety. We've got to go meet somebody who can make our life miserable, who has money we need or, or something, and we fret about it. And we don't know that the Lord isn't taking care of all that so that when we walk up, it's going to work out just what we need. Now, no, it doesn't always work out the way we think it should. But the Lord is is, is working before we ever get to where we're going to be. That, that's what we see here, and that's what we want to remember in our own situation, <clears throat> that God works behind the scenes because he's in control of everything. So it's just a great, that's like an Esther, it's just a great um, lesson there to, to be learned. <clears throat> And so here's an example of God moving the heart of the king to do his will. Because the will of man does not reign supreme. The king's heart is in the stream of the water. Is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Remember as kids, you, you know, you had a little, you know, after maybe a rain, you had a little bit of water flow. And you dam it up and you change the water and all that. That's what the Lord is. This is in the hearts of people. It's just that easy. It's just pliable mud. It does whatever he wants to. And so that's the, the first uh, narrative here. It goes down through verse 6. And then we come to verse 7. And we see the king of uh, Syria, Ben-Hadad, who is sick and uh, apparently dying or thinks he's dying and wants to know the outcome. And so now we have a king. And again, it, we might compare him to King David who constantly talked to the Lord. Here you've got a lost king who doesn't have any access to the Lord. The best he can do is ask for the prophet to come and, well, you know, tell me if I'm going to recover from this because he has no access to God. And I hope that people when they when, who know us know that they can come to us if they have questions about God, questions about the Word, and we will tell them we can be an Elisha to them. Um, and, and they know that if, if we do, if they do ask us a question, we're going to tell them the truth. We're not going to tell them what the, we think they might want to hear. We're going to tell them what the Word of God says. And it's not, unti- it's not unusual that he's, his question is not 
Um, if I die, where Elisha, where am I going? Where's my soul going? He's only concerned about his physical life because that's what the lost are. That's what's so sad about the lost. And so he wants to know if he's going to live or not. Well, he needs to know is, is are, am I prepared to die? But of course, that's not what lost people do. And, you know, I don't know, I don't think I've ever had any lost person come up to me and say, uh, pray for me because I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to heaven or not. I, I don't know that I'm saved. I got people going to say, uh, pray for me. I uh, got my, I'm in physical need. I, I'm sick or my mother is sick or whoever is sick. Pray for my physical needs, but they don't have any concern for the spiritual. In other words, that's the whole problem with being lost. And so, <clears throat> verse 9 here, uh, Hazel is, when he comes to him, is to bring a present. He brings him 40 uh, loads, camel loads of, of goods. And someone made the observation that that is a, a fulfillment of the Psalm 23, thou prepares a table before, uh, for me in the presence of mine enemies. Uh, there's the Lord doing just that. It's the, the mammon of unrighteousness. But there again, the same lesson. You, you know, Elisha might not really know what, he'd have enough food for the next few days. Who knows? And all of a sudden, here he's got 40 camels worth of goods, the best of Syria. And just how easily the Lord can change your situation when it's his uh, will. And we need to take comfort in that. Well, as we said, uh, this account is really the fulfillment of uh, earlier prophecy. And that's found right here in Second First Kings 19. Whereas uh, this is with Elijah. And Elisha was... She had been called, had just been called, and it said, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazia. And this is, remember, this is when Elijah had fled, and as I looked at it, and as I presented it, the, the covenant had been broken, and Elijah kind of asked God to, to, uh, to destroy, well, to bring his just wrath upon Israel for rejecting him, right? And so he says, at that point, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. So that's already happened, right? And Elisha, I'm sure, knows this. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Well, we'll get to Jehu and his part in all this starting in the next, next chapter. But he's already been anointed king. Um, and you, um, and, you, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And so this, I think, is speaking primarily of the leaders of Israel who were leading Israel into their idolatry and, and the enemies. And so that's what we, we see this part with Haziel um, being done now, where um, this is a time where Haziel is going to uh, put his sword to one of the uh, Ben Hadad, but he's not going to get away with it entirely. You know, his day is coming. So this that that kind of sets up what we're seeing here. Now, some have difficulty in that it sounds like Elisha is lying to Haziel a little bit. Go tell the king that he's going to recover. <laughs> 
when the next day he's going to die. But what we have here, the reason to me this is so interesting, is that we're seeing, we get a look at how God works his providential will in relationship to his revealed will. His revealed will, for instance, is that all men should repent. But we know that his eternal counsels are that he's not going to, uh, it's not going to happen. Not through any fault of his own, right? And so, here, the revealed, the revealed will of God was that Ben-Hadad's sickness is not unto death that he's going to recover. But, Haziel is going to take this as an opportunity to kill him. So, it wasn't the, the disease that killed him. That's really all that the Lord is saying. It's going to be Haziel who's going to kill him. And so, that, that's kind of interesting. You start thinking that those kind of things through. It's how God operates in this world, and especially with the lost. God has revealed his will of what he expects. What he respects of us and of all men. Yet, he allows many to do just the opposite. And, and that's not incongruent. As I said, God has revealed what all men are to do, and sin is saying, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. So here we see that if Hazael does right, the king will recover. But Elisha is given behind-the-scenes look at the what ultimately will be, and he sees that, that Hazael is going to become king. Perhaps he's, he's, he knew why, but he didn't tell Hazael that. And he, that Hazael was going to uh, be the king of Syria, and was going to war against Israel and kill them, and do uh, some pretty horrible things, but not horrible in the sense that that's just what people, these wicked kings did. Haziel's not amazed. He, he's not saying, I would never do such a thing, you know, rip up the pregnant women and things like that. He's saying, I'm just a servant. I'm just a dog. How in the world could I do such great things? How, how could I ever be king of, of Syria? I'm just a servant. But, but he starts thinking about it. And, of course, he's been, uh, as we know, he's already been uh, anointed. And so he starts thinking about it, and he says, you know what? I think I'll, the king is weak. I'll kill him and take his place, which is what he does. So Haziel is not content for the king to recover because he has designs of his own. <clears throat> and so God reveals all he needs to reveal to Haziel. He will recover. But what he doesn't make clear is that he's going to allow uh, to interrupt his recovery in, in this sinful way. That God is going to say, well, my, my, this sickness is not unto death. I'm not going to restrain Haziel from doing what is in his heart. Which is, again, how the, the world operates. That, that why we have sinners. Because sinners sin unless God restrains them. <clears throat> So it's a rare case in which man is shown God's direct will for them and also the fact that they will not obey his will and the results that follow. And yet Haziel still rebels, which is why he will be judged. So God says, yes, the king will recover. And then Elisha tells him, in addition to that, uh, you're going to be king and you're going to be fighting against my people. And he, and he sees this and, and it troubles him because he sees the death of, of Israelites. And uh, 
And so Haziel has a choice to make, and he chooses wrongly, because that's what rebels do. So you can't blame the Lord, because the Lord didn't tell him to do that. The Lord says, you know, if you don't do anything, Haziel will recover. So in verse 12, um, you know, he Elisha is upset because he see he's given a vision of the, the horrors of war, and the horrors of wars at, at that time. It's interesting that God seems to hold out a carrot, in a sense, for Haziel. He tells him that he will be victorious in battle and become king. And notice that Haziel isn't appalled at these atrocities, because that's the normal way these kings acted and what they did. He just can't see how a servant can get to that position. And so, in other words, the Lord lets him see how he could fulfill his ambitions and even tells him that he will fulfill them, yet he never tells him to, to, to do it by killing the king, never okays him to sin. And so it's, remember how we, what we learned with Absalom, uh, that uh, the bad advice to Absalom was really the good advice, that the uh, Ahithophel's advice was, was good for Absalom, but it rejects it because Haziel, I think, well, I'm sure it wasn't Haziel, it's a different name, but it starts with an H. The, the, the guy with the good advice says, no, Absalom, you need to go and do it yourself. And he spoke to his pride, and, and but it was the bad advice. But because he spoke to his pride, Absalom runs headlong and, 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 and that's, gets himself killed. And that's what's going on here. Um, <clears throat> he simply allowed, he simply has, holds out this carrot of, what Hazael wants, and instead of thinking it through, he, he chooses that which is good for Hazael. And of course, that's what sin does. So it's just one of those rare passages in which we see how the Lord controls all things for his purposes, even the sinful hearts of men, and, and still can hold sinners accountable or responsible for their rebellion. Because he's already told them what to do, and what, you know, but he, but he doesn't say, he doesn't, Force him not to do it. So just because God has ordained for all this to happen, by not keeping him back from sinning, doesn't mean that God is responsible for sin. And that's where a lot of people really struggle, because if God has decreed all things to happen, then they think, well, that means God is responsible for all the evil in the world. Well, God is responsible for it in the sense that he has created this world, and he's allowed the fall, but... He keeps shouting from heaven, don't do it. Worship only me. And But he has not stopped men from falling into sin. Then he has his purposes for that. But that's what sin is, it's rebellion. And, and to hold God accountable, is the only other way to get around that is that God is saying, well, God shouldn't have uh, uh, created Adam and Eve and, and all this, the scenario in the garden to begin with because it, because he, it, man was going to fall. Well, no, because God could do what he wants to do. So allowing sin to enter the universe doesn't mean that he created it or he's guilty of it. Remember how Jesus told Judas what he was going to do, but Jesus didn't restrain Judas from doing it. He, uh, he, uh, it suited God's purposes. Judas had to do that. It was ordained that he would do it. 
and so just uh, pointed out to Judas that this is wrong. It doesn't stop Judas from doing it. But he didn't stop him from doing it. Again, if, it, if all that mattered was man's pleasure, man's happiness, his comfort, then uh, God wouldn't allow Judas to do that to start with. But of course, there's more. There's more going on than just you know whether man a man goes to hell or not. And so we're warned of our responsibility and accountability for sin. And so as this king Ben Hadad lived, remember he's the one who made siege to Samaria and was forcing people to eat their children. You might say he's the one who was laying in wait trying to kill the king of. Uh, Israel and Elisha kept thwarting that. Remember a couple of chapters ago? He is a man of war and he dies in violence. And that's, uh, the, of course, the Bible something the Bible has uh, said before, told us before. But we also see Elijah, that it was difficult for him to, to pronounce judgment because he sees the, the horror of what's going on. And I think it just reminds us, too, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Has God ordained that there be wickedness, that there would be hell, that there would be judgment? Well, yes. Does he delight in that? No. Does he find pleasure in carrying out his justice? Yes. But does he delight in it? No. There's a difference. I think the Bible makes that clear. We don't have time to go to different verses. But he commands, as I said, all men everywhere to repent because this is his will. That would please him. He will glorify himself in those who refuse his mercy. But there is a difference in the pleasure of God in glorifying himself, even among the wicked through judgment, and delighting in those who love him and serve him. There's one thing reflects his nature, that he loves that which is good, and he loves uh, love, and he is a loving God. And he delights in his nature. But he's a God of justice. And he's a God of wrath. He's a God that will not let these things go. So he will glorify himself in that and find pleasure in doing that. But it's different. He doesn't, it's not like he's just happy to send people to hell. He doesn't want to send people to hell. But he must. And because he must glorify himself in that way. And the Bible makes this distinction. And I would say to be careful of those who rail against the sovereignty of God by calling God mean or unjust because he doesn't determine to save all men because he's a God and he's being God and he doesn't have to save all men. And as we know, the, the whole point of the scripture is to show us that he will glorify himself both in the salvation and the judgment of all men. So every time we try to define God according to our fallen concepts and emotions and feelings, we will fall into error. Every time we decide that this is, this is, this is how I believe God is, and this is what makes me happy, you can be sure you are falling into error. Remember that Jesus wept over the rejection of Jerusalem even while he glorified the Father for leaving some in their sin. Remember that in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, and this is at that time when 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 God when judgment had been pronounced, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So he refers to God's will to save some but not all as gracious because it is gracious. Because we all deserve judgment. And, and he says he, he, he glorifies the Father for not saving everybody. It's for leaving the arrogant in their ways. And so our view of God has got to fit into these things. Or we uh, sin, we err. And a lot of people I don't think would struggle with the sovereignty of God as much as they do if they would read these Old Testament passages as we've gone through these last, you know, five years. I've been here five years, right? And we've started in Genesis. And I think if you would read Genesis, read the Old Testament, and not just a bunch of little, you know, passages in the New Testament that talk about Jesus doing, uh, telling everybody to love each other, you'd have a a well-rounded understanding of God. And a lot of people have it. And that's why they struggle with these things. So let me just finish by reminding us of what we see of God in all this. In the woman, we see a kindness in God that should rejoice his children, as, as we've talked about. But we see here a king held responsible, and that should cause us alarm because we know that God is holy and that all men will, uh, God will make everything right. And so if you're outside of Christ, you are in trouble. Let me see the weeping of God's servant at the severity of God's judgment. And it should remind us that it's not something that we delight in ourselves. It's something that we should, um, it should cause us consternation and it should give us a burden for those that we know who are not in Christ. Now very quickly, let me just sum up the rest of this chapter. We won't get into this today or next week. But it tells us here that in the fifth year of Joram, verse 16, of Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat was king in Judah, and Jehoram, which is really the same name, and, and there's one translation that actually set, uses Joram for both of them. But just so you don't get confused, you've got Joram in the north, you've got Jehoram in the south, and he is a wicked king, and his son Ahaziah in uh, Ahaziah in verse 25 is also wicked. And it's setting up the judgment that Jehu is going to bring in the next chapter. But I, I point this out that you have here an odd thing. You've got two wicked kings in Judah. Up until now, you really haven't seen much of that. Now you've got two in Judah that the Lord will quickly uh, get rid of. They won't last very long. Uh, it'll become the norm, of course, later on. But this is kind of the first time you've seen this. But what's interesting, the reason you've got it is in, is that both of these guys have connections to Ahab and Jezebel. They, um, Jehoshaphat, remember, he was someone who, who just couldn't seem to separate himself from Ahab. He gets one of Ahab's uh, daughters to marry his son. And then the same thing, uh, then one of Ahab's uh, daughters, uh, the granddaughter of um No, um, in Ahaziah, his mother is the granddaughter of Omri, who is Ahab's father. And so you've got this these two guys who were were raised in compromised families, where the the mothers are uh, direct come directly from Ahab. They were idolaters, and they they married into the family, and they 
create these two wicked kings. And so we're just reminded again why unholy unions don't work. Why we're to keep ourselves separated from the world when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our influence, we are to maintain certain standards. And that's what Christians do. And the Christians have always done that. Not because we're better than anybody else. It's because we know that we're still sinners. And we can't be in close proximity to lost people uh, in that sense, especially when it comes to marriages, and expect things to go well. It doesn't work that way. And so we have another instance of that in this passage. Any questions or comments as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you love to us this day. And Lord, for the difficult passages that show both the uh, love and the severity of our Lord. And that uh, it, it reminds us that there is only one way to uh, remove ourselves from the wrath of God. And that is through the work of Christ to be united to him. For those who reject the Lord, <clears throat> there is only misery and Eternity facing the wrath of God. And so, Lord, that is uh, a huge theme in Scripture. We are appalled that there are those today who reject any idea that God uh, would judge somebody, that his wrath would abide upon people. And yet, Lord, we must be faithful to tell the world that uh, there is a reason why one must be saved and if not, there is, as we say, hell to pay. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful and not to be afraid of this world or ashamed of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.